We are in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. We're in a series from the book of Colossians about making Jesus preeminent in our lives and even more importantly, in our church. This church uh, was, does not belong to any of us individually or even us corporately. This church belongs to him. He is the head. And we will only go so far as he is the head of the church, as we make him our Lord and make him our king. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a subject that is all through the New Testament, but we don't hear about often enough, and that is legalism. We often talk these days about the dangers of and the perils of the world outside, the, the, the unsaved, unredeemed world and its values and, and staying clear of that, which is absolutely a biblical theme. And we should talk about it and we should live by that. But so is this idea of legalism. Our problem, our biggest enemy is not those on the outside. Our biggest problem is within. Uh, and I'm not just talking about First Baptist Conroe. I mean, any church, anybody who's ever been in a church knows that is a struggle. Remember, when Jesus was here in the flesh, it wasn't the pagans, it wasn't the unbelievers, it wasn't the, the sexually depraved, it wasn't people who were living their lives completely contrary to God who were his biggest problem, who opposed him, who tried to get him crucified. In fact, those were the people most drawn to him. Instead, it was the religious folks. It was the rule keepers. It was people like you and me. Uh, I would be willing to bet, because I know many of you, that you grew up, like I did, as a person who did his or her best to always do what was expected of them. You were, you were a good kid for the most part. You didn't rebel tremendously against your parents. You, you turned in your homework on time. Uh, as an adult, you... you replace your divots on the golf course and, and you, you pretty much follow the rules and, and you do what's expected. You're a, a respectable citizen, which is a good thing. I, I'm, I think that's an easier way to live than you know fighting against the wind all the time. And yet we're the ones who are most drawn to this legalism that is such a cancer in God's church. And interestingly, one of those Pharisees who hated Jesus so much was a man named Saul of Tarsus who then met him on the road to Damascus. And from that day forward, he hated legalism. He wrote a whole book about it. That's the book of Galatians. We may do that next year. I'm, I'm still praying about that. But right here in Colossians, as he's talking to the Colossian Christians about making Jesus preeminent, he wants them to make sure they know the difference between making Jesus your king and making the law your king. And we're going to talk about that today because I think a lot of us don't know the difference between following Jesus and following rules, between simply being religious and having a relationship with an actual Savior. So here's what we see in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations?' 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, as I've been saying a lot lately, it's, it's helpful if you want to get more out of this message if you continue to have the scriptures in front of you. So call it up on your smartphone, use the Bible in front of you or the Bible you brought. But uh, let's look at what Paul is saying and why, what legalism is and why it's such a problem for us. And the first thing is, it's all about who's in and who's out. Legalism is more focused on the sin of others than it is on our own. It is more focused on, our, on whether so-and-so is righteous than whether I am righteous. We, we want to draw lines. We want to we make what we call, what, what John Ortberg, one of my favorite preachers, calls boundary markers. He grew up in Baptist churches in Illinois, and he said in the churches he grew up in, uh, people could be elected to important positions, even a pastor, and still be prideful, uh, angry all the time, lacking compassion, lacking kindness. Nobody would say a thing about it. They might say, well, you know, pastor is, you know, he's, he's a pretty harsh man, but he preaches the word. I mean, you got to give him that. He preaches the word. But if that same preacher had been seen in public smoking a cigarette, he would have been fired that same day. See, that was a boundary marker in the churches, in the Baptist churches in Illinois, even though there's nothing directly about cigarette smoking or smoking of any kind in the scriptures. Now, you can make a case that God has given us a body and that body should be taken care of. Frankly, I hope none of you uh, abuse your body in that way, but that's not a scriptural issue. Those other things are. It was a boundary marker that they had constructed outside of the word of God and said, okay, our, our preacher can't smoke, our deacons can't smoke or else they're out. We have these boundary markers. All of us do. And depending on the church you grew up in or maybe the family you grew up in, your boundary markers may look different than mine. So when in verse 16, when he says, let no one pass judgment on you, he's not saying, well, you do you. You just live any way you want to live and God will be fine with it. That's, we know that's not the case. We are called to confront sin in one another. That's part of loving one another in the name of Christ. But we do it with love, with humility. We do it with grace. We do it face to face. We don't gossip about others behind their backs. But the examples he gives, he says, don't let them judge you in regard to the food you eat or the kinds of celebrations you attend. We're having a big new moon celebration at the church this week. Well, you know, uh, Bobby didn't show up. I guess he's not as righteous as the rest of us. Or you know, it's the Sabbath day and I saw him, I saw him walk three quarters of a mile. And I just, I believe that you can only walk a half a mile on the Sabbath. These are man-made boundary markers that we construct. Why? So we can judge who's in and who's out. So we can decide for ourselves who's good and who's bad. It's legalism is so much more concerned with other people's spirituality than it is with our own. And not out of love, out of a desire to feel superior, out of a desire to know who's good and who's bad. We all have our personal convictions. My grandfather, I've talked about many times, who was a dairy farmer, deacon, Sunday school teacher, great, great man. He was of the conviction that a man should wear a suit to church on Sundays. And this was a guy who wore jeans and overalls throughout the week, but on Sundays, he wore a suit. Didn't matter what it was like outside. It was usually a three-piece suit. He said, if Jesus died for me, I can feel uncomfortable for an hour for him. 
That was his personal conviction. But he didn't gripe out men who showed up dressed like this or worse or, or less, even less formally. You see what I'm saying? You can have your personal convictions. I have a personal conviction that I shouldn't be on social media on Sunday mornings because it takes my focus off the Lord. But that doesn't mean you're a sinner if you logged on to Facebook this morning. That's, your, that's between you and the Lord. Okay, so it, it, legalism is about who's in and who's out. That's one way to, to describe it. That's one way to identify it. Number two, here's where we really get down to the, the bare basics of it. It's false certainty at the expense of truth. See, the irony is legalists are often the people in the church who claim to be the most biblical. But when you sit and listen to them rant and rant about their pet issues, and they will, They'll be glad to tell you what their, what their pet issue is. It's almost nothing, it's almost never anything that really has to do with the scripture. It's something else that they've brought into uh, the, the Christian faith. They lack humility in the face of God's word. And that's why in verse 18, Paul calls them puffed up without reason by their sensual minds. Remember, Paul's, Paul was that. That was the way he was. He, he had certainty on everything. Everything was black and white. A legalist, you'll never hear them say, well, you know, that's something I really don't know yet. That, that's a question I haven't figured out yet. I'm working on it. They don't, they don't ever say that because they have to be certain about everything. Everything is black and white and you must agree with them or you are their enemy. So, so let's, let's really identify this. I'm going to give you a, a grid to help uh, help, help you understand what I'm talking about here. There are three kinds of issues that people in churches tend to disagree about. If you, if you were with us on Wednesday night, we talked about this already. You, you got a head start. There are primary issues. That's the first kind. Primary issues are issues that are central to the faith. They're about God's character or who or how people get saved. They're about who God is or how we can know him. Uh, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He is fully God and human and fully man. He lived a perfect sinless life. He, his death on the cross atones for our sins. He rose again the third day. He is coming back someday to judge the living and the dead. Those are all primary issues, primary doctrines. If someone disagrees with you on those things, you should see that they need the gospel. No matter how often they come to church, no matter what kind of moral life they live, if they don't agree with you on those primary doctrines, they don't know Jesus because they're believing in a different God than you believe in. Different God than the one of the scriptures, the different God than the one who saves us. These are the kinds of issues that if it ever becomes illegal to preach this stuff, you and I ought to be willing to go to jail or even to death rather than deny these doctrines. Those are the things that are primary. And can I be honest and say a terrible thing? Christians almost never get upset about these things. Christians almost never leave a church over this kind of stuff. They'll put up with all kinds of heresy in a church. But these are the primary doctrines. These are the things the scriptures are clear on. Then there are secondary issues. These are issues where it's in the Bible and it's important, but people of goodwill who have an equal desire to discern the will of God, uh, who, who both have the same respect for the Bible, can read the same scriptures and come away with different opinions. And they can say, well, I don't agree with your interpretation, but I respect you. I'll give you an example of a secondary issue. And that's baptism. If a parent comes to me, this hasn't happened yet, but if a parent comes to me and says, uh, my wife and I just had a baby and we want to get her baptized, when, when can we do that? I will say, well, 
We believe the scriptures teach that baptism should be by immersion for people who, at whatever age, have made a conscious individual decision to follow Christ. That's what baptism is. It's, it's, the, sig- it's the sign that you, the old you is gone and a new you is here. And I would try my best to show them that in the scriptures. If they disagreed with me, they would have to go to another church to get their infant baptized. And I would let them go with my blessing. I wouldn't consider them an unbeliever. In fact, I would hope that they would go there and flourish in their faith and that that church would flourish and would grow and glorify God. Because at, at, the, at the gates of heaven, we're not going to be asked, what did you believe about baptism? That's not what we're saved upon. Is it important? Absolutely. But it is not primary. It's important enough that it can separate us into different churches, but not separate us from one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Number three, there are tertiary issues. Now, that's just a $50 word for third most important, okay? But it's a fun word to say. Tertiary issues. So, uh, these are ones that if the scripture mentions them, it mentions them very vaguely, if at all, and usually not at all. These are issues that have nothing to do with God's name or salvation. These are issues on which Christians can disagree and still worship in the same church, should be able to still worship in the same church. Let me give you three examples. Here's where I'm going to get in trouble, all right? So it's been nice knowing you. I love being your pastor. I, I, I love it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> love you. So end time scenarios, that's a tertiary issue. It's primary that Jesus is returning someday. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead and there will be a new earth where we will live forever. Hallelujah. That's primary. You got to believe that that's in the scriptures beyond a shadow of a doubt. How that happens, when that happens, the sequence of events. In fact, the very events themselves that lead up to that people of goodwill who love the scriptures disagree on those. That doesn't matter. When Jesus comes back, it won't matter who was right about how it happened. It will only matter who's ready. Okay, so, so if you're getting upset that your life group leader doesn't believe the same, didn't read the same book you read about the end times and doesn't agree with you, just calm down. It's all right. Because when Jesus comes back, it won't matter. I promise. It, it won't matter one bit. You'll just be glad that he's here. All right, secondly, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> Church music. Church music is a tertiary issue. Is it important? Absolutely. Do we all have strong feelings about it? Yes. Am I glad I go to a church that's talented enough where we can sing three different kinds of music on a Sunday morning and do it well? I love that. I get the benefit of that because I get all three. And I know how emotional people are about the music they love. But I defy you to show me in scripture where your kind is the right kind. So you are perfectly, I'm glad you can go to a service where we sing the songs that speak to your heart and that draw you close to the Lord. And I, I, I'm just before, between you, me and God, that is always going to be the case as long as I'm the pastor. But let's not look down on people who commune with the Lord in a different way. They, they, they experience worship in a, in a way that, is different than the way you do, but is just as significant. All right, number three, politics. Politics. Now, we're in probably the reddest county in the reddest state in America. I realize the way most of us vote. I I vote pretty much that same way. 
And do the scriptures speak to individual political issues? Yes, the Bible talks about the sanctity of life. The Bible talks about there are, there are two genders, male and female. The Bible talks about sexuality. The Bible talks about race. The Bible talks about poverty, economics, right on down the line. And we should not shy away from talking about those things. The Bible does not say the words Biden, Trump, Pelosi, Cruz. Not that I've found. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, that's a hymn. That's different. So... Should Christians vote? Yes. Should Christians vote in a way that is informed by their faith? Absolutely. Should Christians pray for our leaders? Should we pray for revival? Absolutely. But you will not hear me endorse a candidate, even if it's someone who goes to our church, because that's a human being. And I owe you the word of God. I owe you the truth, not my opinion. And even as strongly as I might hold it, because when we elevate tertiary issues to secondary or even primary level, what are we doing? We're dividing the, the, the church over something that's not essential. And even worse, we're setting up a false barrier to people coming to know Christ. Because somebody comes and says, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian. Well, I, I can't go there. You're setting up an unnatural, unbiblical barrier to someone accepting the gospel. And that's the line that I think we have to draw. Let's stand on the truth. Here, here's, here's what helps me. Only speak with confidence where the Bible speaks with clarity. Only speak with confidence where the Bible speaks with clarity. We can share our opinions. We can debate. We can, we can, uh, we can discuss these tertiary issues, and they're fine. But be humble in the body of Christ. Be humble when we disagree. On those primary issues, stand strong. Speak with confidence. Because the Bible on those things speaks with clarity. All right, I've spent a long enough time there. Number three, it's rules instead of a relationship. Legalism is not a relationship with Christ. Verse 19 accuses legalists of not holding fast to the head. They don't even know Jesus. They're not attached to him. They're in love with rules. They're in love with ritual. They're in love with the feeling they get when they do those things, but they're not in love with Christ. Remember, the ones who hated Jesus the most were the rule followers. When Jesus was talking to them about how they tithe not only 10% of their crops, but also 10% of the herbs in their flower beds, notice he didn't say, you guys ought to stop that. He didn't say that. He wasn't angry with them for following rules or even for going above and beyond what the Bible said in following the rules. He was angry at them because they ignored the more important things like love and justice and faithfulness. They were more concerned with the externals than becoming like Christ on the inside. God's commands still matter. Uh, you should follow the commands of God. But let, it, let your obedience be motivated by love. See, this is the way a rule follower approaches God. Imagine a husband asks his wife, what are the three most important things I can do for you every day to make you happy? That's a good question for a husband to ask his wife. Imagine she thinks a while and says, well, I, I'd love for you to tell me that you love me at least once a day. I'd love for you to uh, take out the trash. That's one responsibility that I just, I don't want to do anymore. And, and, and then three, I want you to spend 30 minutes every day just talking to me without TV on, without 
looking at your phone. So the next day, imagine he wakes her up first thing in the morning. Hey, honey, I love you. Well, she didn't really want to be awake then, but that's a nice way to wake up. Okay, so I've already taken out the trash. Your 30 minutes starts now. Okay. Come on, woman. That's, that's not love. And yet that's the way a legalist approaches God. They're just, get these things out of the way so I can feel good about myself. To, to follow rules is so much easier than having a relationship because in a relationship, that other person never stops contradicting you and telling you, no, this is what I need. You never really reach perfection in a relationship. You're always working on it. Whereas rules, you can just check those off a box and you feel good. Which one do you have? Rules or a relationship? Next, it trades the joy and freedom of Christ for fear, shame, and guilt. In verse 20, he says, why are you still submitting to the regulations of this world? Like, do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch. He's talking about how legalism can make Christianity into a form of bondage instead of abundant life. Now, don't make the opposite mistake. I, I hear Christians every once in a while say, well, I just think God wants me to be happy. And that becomes the guiding rule by which they make their decisions. Well, if, if this decision brings more happiness to my heart, it must be the will of God. Well, that is a, a silly, thing to, silly way to judge things. The Word of God is there for a purpose. The Holy Spirit is in your heart for a reason. We conform to Christ, not because we're trying to earn something, but because He died for us. And we owe him our obedience. And secondly, because we learn over time that obeying him makes us happier than doing our own thing. It's good for us and it's good for him. But legalism takes away that freedom in Christ. See, here's what freedom in Christ looks like. When I wake up and I make time for the Lord in my day, first part of my day is spent with him. It's a blessing to me. If I keep doing that over and over again, I'm growing in joy and peace and all kinds of qualities that I used to lack. But if tomorrow I oversleep and I go to work, if I come to this church to do my work and I haven't spent time with the Lord, is God going to strike me dead for it? Do I, do I worry that, that he's going to give one of my kids the, the measles or something because I didn't have prayer that morning? No, that's not the way God works. If I, this week, somebody tells an off-color joke, you know, probably Alan. I'm just kidding. <laughs> if somebody tells an off-color joke and I find myself laughing at it, I need to repent before God, and so do they, but I don't then worry that my eyes are going to fall out of my sockets because God is not up there just waiting to rub me out with his thumb, looking, itching for an opportunity to smite me. That's not the God we serve. We serve a God of love and mercy and faithfulness, a God who grieves when we sin. So if you ever find yourself, I realize some of you are going to move at some point. You ever find yourself in a church that is ruled by fear and guilt and shame? Leave immediately. And don't say, oh, but they preach the word. They don't preach the word. If they're preaching the word, then the church is going to be characterized by love and joy and peace. Go somewhere where the real gospel is preached. All right, I got to move. It feels like true religion, but it doesn't actually change us. 
Verse 23 says, these have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. This is, this is the hard thing is people, when you talk about legalism, and this has been true of me all, my, all the years that I've been preaching, whenever I mention legalism, there's always someone who comes up to me and says, but Jeff, that sounds like the way I was raised. That sounds like religion. That sounds like the truth. And these are good people who say this. And I admit that most of us who are serious about following Jesus at some point go through a legalistic phase. So here's my story. When I was in college was the first time when I really started pursuing Christ for myself, not just to make my parents happy. And I remember going home one day, my brother and his best friend were at home and I brought them this huge, huge box that I had of cassette tapes of rock and roll music. And I said, y'all, I've decided to listen to nothing but Christian music from this day forward. So y'all can have whatever you want out of this, throw the rest away. And I felt so proud of myself. Felt like I was really righteous. Now, was listening to Christian music a good thing? Absolutely. It, it had a tremendous benefit to my life. I wouldn't change that decision. But if that music that I had before was rotting my soul, why'd I give it to my brother? <laughs> what is that about? And why'd I feel so proud? When the truth was, I mean, yeah, music is one thing, but I was selfish and I was immature and I was petty and I was ridiculous on, a, on a, so many levels. Why would I ever feel proud of anything? Legalism feels like true religion, but there's no real change. Change has to happen on the inside for it to be the work of Christ. And then number six, the last one, it fosters pride and does not stop sin. Verse 23 ends with these words, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If you ever wonder why so many moralistic people, whether it's a pompous politician or a loudmouth preacher, people who get up behind on a stage and talk about who's good and who's evil, so many of those folks get caught up in moral scandals. This is at least part of the answer. It's because they think their moral harshness is a shield against sin, but in reality, it's just producing more pride in them that makes their fall that much worse. Romans 7, Paul talks about it. He says, listen, the man I was before, the law actually led me into sin. When all I had was the law, the law just reminded me that there was such a thing as coveting. So what did I do? I coveted. He's not saying it's, the law is a bad thing. He's saying that just shows how evil I am, that the law of God can produce sin in me. But thanks be to God, because there's a Savior named Jesus Christ. And so in Philippians 3, kind of the second half of that autobiography of Paul, he says, when I lost all that dependence on the law, all that pride that I had in being more righteous than my brothers. When all I had left was Jesus, that's when I had freedom. That's when I found the life that I was called to live. So what are we supposed to do? See, the only command I see in this whole passage I read is verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. I love how it reads in the New American Standard Version. It says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Don't let anybody steal from you your joy, your peace, your purpose, the joy of your salvation. Don't let legalists win. If you experience, I should say when you experience legalism in this church or any church, confront it with humility and grace, but stand firm against it. And tell them, listen, this isn't the gospel. We're not living by the gospel here. We're, we're, we're setting ourselves up as moral authorities when Jesus is the moral authority. 
We're, we're operating through fear and anger and, and, and guilt and shame when Jesus came to bring us freedom and joy. Identify that stuff for what it is and let the truth set you free. So what is the truth? The truth is that Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. The truth is Jesus died for sinners and therefore no Christian should ever feel morally superior to anyone. The truth is only God knows who's in and who's out. It's our job to love them in his name, period. The truth is that we should speak with confidence where the Bible speaks with clarity and be gracious to those who disagree with us. The truth is that Jesus produces love and joy and peace and not fear and guilt and shame. The truth is when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you change on the inside, not just externally. The truth is that one of the best signs of true redemption is you're becoming more humble and you have a heart that never stops repenting. The truth is that we are loved by an almighty God forever. Amen.